0: Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Thank you, Dr. Aiken, for that very kind and um, warm introduction to you all here. It's my privilege to come and bring you God's word. So thank you again, Dr. Aiken, for this wonderful privilege. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 17, Exodus chapter 17 verses one through seven will be the scripture reading this morning, Exodus chapter 17 verses one through seven. If it would be all right, would you all stand for the reading of God's word? People of God, listen carefully for this is the word of the Lord. and our children, and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there, On the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. One of my all-time favorite hymns, and it's interesting how certain hymns conjure up certain images or memories of the past. Well, this particular song, whenever we sing it at my church or even in my home, thoughts fly back to when I was young, when I was in high school, listening to my grandmother who was li- living with us at the time, and every morning she would faithfully pull out her Korean hymnal and her Korean Bible, and this was one of her favorite hymns that she would sing. So I would listen to her Later in life, as she was dying from cancer and I was sitting with her in the hospital, we would actually sing this hymn hymn together in my broken Korean, whatever I can read on the Korean hymnal, finding strength and assurance from God our rock, especially in seasons of life when anything was but stable. But this hymn also confused me. I don't know if it ever confused you, if you thought about the words. You know, these first, this first line, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, allude back to the images found in Exodus 33. Remember that wonderful scene? Great Moses is up on Sinai asking God to show him his glory, but knowing that Moses cannot stand his overwhelming Shekinah glory, God says, okay, I'm going to place you in this kind of cleft of the rock. I'm going to turn you around, place my hand, and I'll go by. And you'll sense my glory, my power. And so God reveals himself to Moses in this awesome way, promising his powerful and protective presence among his people during the wilderness wanderings. So naturally you would expect the rest of the hymn to talk about that, right? God's powerful protection and provision, his purposeful providence. But Do you remember how the next line goes? After rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. It says, let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me of its guilt and power. Why all of a sudden the imagery of the cross? How do we go from the rock in Exodus 33 all the way to Jesus? Is the hymn writer, Augustus Toplady, seeing something here in Exodus 33 that I just can't see? What's going on here? How does being in the cleft of the rock lead to the cross? And so it's always perplexed me until I remembered Exodus 17. This passage that we just read and that we're going to look at today. I think what Augustus Toplady is doing is actually blending the image of two rocks. Not only the rock in Exodus 33, but also the rock here in Exodus 17. Interestingly, I think the psalmist also understood this. The psalmist talks about this interesting event in Israelite history in Psalm 95. You'll know it because of this first phrase in verse six. Psalm 95, six says, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. We all know this. Let us, for he is our God, we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Well, usually we stop there, right? The psalmist goes on, he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, he's talking about this incident, as on that day of Massa in the wilderness when your fathers tested me, though they had seen my works, So for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, there are people who go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter enter my rest. As the psalmist here describes this important event in the history of the Israelites, he warns his readers, including you and I here today, he warns us not to follow in the same hard-heartedness of these who grumbled their way through the wilderness wanderings. And friends, if you're like me, I'm sure there have been moments in these last 18 months or so when you felt like you've been wandering in a wilderness. Feeling parched, powerless, wanting desperately to keep trusting God in his providence, and yet feeling sometimes so discouraged, defeated. But beloved, God has a good word for you today. Especially as many of you feel discouraged at the seemingly out-of-control world in which we live, God is reminding us to keep trusting in him. Even when our circumstances look hopeless and powerless, we can cry out in faith because He is the rock of ages. In fact, the psalmist goes out of his way to mention Masa, right, which actually means trial, interestingly, and Meribah, which means strife. For this is no ordinary drama in the history of the Israelites. He wants us to remember way back in Exodus 17 when the Israelites decided to take God to court. That's right. What you'll soon see, as we go through this passage together, is actually a legal drama. It's kind of like People's Court. I'm going to date myself here a little bit. You guys remember that show, People's Court, Judge Wapner? Da da da. The defendant walks in, right? Da da da. The plaintiff, suing for five hundred dollars. Remember that, Judge Wapner? I know there's other court shows and stuff like that, that's what actually I remember. So that's actually what's happening here is this kind of people's court. But this is no ordinary legal drama. As this drama unfolds in this, can we call it, desert courtroom of Massa and Meribah, three legal elements will unfold, okay? So first, a charge will be presented. Secondly, a verdict will be rendered. And then third, based on that verdict, a sentence will be executed, okay? So a charge, verdict, and sentencing. Let's take a look. First of all, the charge. What's going on here? Well, verse 2 actually sets the scene for us in this desert courtroom. It says, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, again, the same word, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And so the plaintiffs enter the courtroom, the people of Israel. Then comes a defendant representing God himself. This is Moses, the kind of covenant lawyer for God. How can I say this? Because the people actually bring a legal charge against Moses and God. This word that we have translated for us, quarrel, is not a a normal kind of fighting over who gets the remote control, etc. This is actually a specific word in Hebrew representing some sort of legal suit that's being presented. It has this connotation of litigation or contention. In fact, elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's used in legal context to bring a lawsuit. So who who exactly is being charged here? Well, the charges obviously brought against Moses, it seems like, right? Why do you contend with me? But also against God, why do you test the Lord? You see, God, via Moses, is being accused and charged of abandoning Israel to die of thirst in the desert. And so you almost have to picture it in your minds. Here they are in the hot and arid Sinai Peninsula, The scorching sun has been baking relentlessly day after day through the thin cloths wrapped around their heads, hot winds blowing sand into the dry cracks of their faces, searing every portion of their skin. Getting thirsty just thinking about it. And in this dry land we call Sinai, these weary bodies that have been traveling for weeks, months, naturally get dehydrated. So they cry out for water, give us water to drink. But behind this request is an actual charge they actually bring an accusation. This is no ordinary complaint. Something much more serious is happening. Well, what exactly is the charge? Well, in legal language, this is kind of like a breach of contract or failure to uphold a promise or even treason. In this case, a failure to uphold a promise, a promise that was made that God would be their God and they would be their people. It was given originally to their great-great-grandfather Abraham. This promise stipulated that God would deliver them from bondage and multiply them as the sands of the seashore. But now look. Look at us. We're about to die. Our children are about to die. Our livestock are about to die. Are you among us or not? Furthermore, in verse 4, which is another clue we read that Moses is afraid of stoning, right? That's not the ordinary thing you do to your leader when you're upset about being thirsty. (laughs) I'm thirsty. (laughs) It's not the ordinary thing you do. Why? Stoning was actually the punishment for treason, for breaking a covenant contractual promise. So this is a legal punishment, stoning. And so what do they do? Instead of leaving the future up to chance, They decide to take matters into their own hands. And what do they say? You've broken your promise for the last time. I can't trust you anymore. I'm out of this relationship. God, I want a divorce. Now, it's easy for us, isn't it, when we read passages like this, to be harsh of the Israelites. Ah, those Israelites. Just like we look at the disciples, Peter, when he, shoots his mouth. Ah, Peter, I wouldn't do that. I would trust God. But let's think about it. If we're honest with ourselves, haven't we been in those situations, especially over these last, this last year or so, when you feel like nothing seems to be going right? It seems that God has abandoned you. And just like the Israelites cry out, have you ever cried out in your heart, God, are you here? Are you among us or not? There's, these are real and honest feelings that we have to reckon with even in our own lives when our faith is tested and tried. So a charge has been recorded, the arguments have been given. What's next, right? The verdict. Moses is told in verse 5 this. By God, God says, walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. There are two things that are significant about this, at least two things. First, as Moses walks on ahead of the people, everybody knows that the verdict is guilty as charged. How do I know this? Because Moses walks up carrying something very special in his hand. This is no ordinary walking stick. It surely was that but it also was a very powerful instrument of God's judgment. In fact, the narrator goes out of his way to remark, this was a staff, God says, the staff with which you struck the Nile. He didn't say, take that staff, the one you walk with that helps you. The staff with which you struck the Nile. And those are little details in Hebrew narrative you have to pay attention to. Why? When Moses struck the Nile River, This river that gave life, right? It was the lifeblood of the Egyptians, if we can call it that, right? Turning this life, this river of life, turning it into blood. It was a strike of judgment against Pharaoh and his disobedience to the Lord. Now it will be used once again to bring justice on behalf of the Lord. So now we see Moses not going up as the defendant or a criminal, but now as the judge. The staff was distinctive for symbolize God's direct power and judgment. But I said there's two things, right? But there's another important element here that demonstrates a serious legal context here, right? God tells Moses to, to walk with somebody, right? These are the elders of Israel. Why are they necessary? Again, because of the unique context and situation. They must formally serve as a jury to ensure that God's justice is executed, that God's righteous judgment will be heard. And so you could almost feel it, right? The air must have been thick with anticipation. Uh-oh, there goes Moses and he's carrying that staff. Somebody going to get a hood, right? Somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to get it. It must have been that awkward, uncomfortable feeling, you know, when something bad is going to happen. But at this point in the drama, you have to ask, who then is the guilty party? Is it Moses? They grumbled against Moses. Is it God? They did put the Lord to the test, but has God been unfaithful? You know, the Israelites had just recently witnessed one of the most incredible events in their history, an event that they would pass on from generation to generation, even to this very day, right? As they were fleeing from Pharaoh and all of his soldiers and chariots, they came to the Red Sea. God says, raise your hands. The Lord parts the Red Sea, and close to two million Israelites walk through. And as the last Israelite stepped up on the shore on the opposite side, The Lord engulfs the Egyptians with the mighty roar of the waves. And and there they stood, the Israelites, tasting the victory of the Lord. There they stood, hearing the cries of the soldiers, seeing the dead wash up on the shore. They were tasting the victory of the Lord. Tangibly, the Lord had shown them his great love, protection. But there's more, right? It's like an infomercial, but wait, there's more. One chapter before, they were thirsty, remember? A couple chapters before. That's not the first time they were thirsty. They came upon bitter water. Moses throws in a log. It becomes sweet, and they drink. Praise the Lord. God is so good. But they were hungry too. And the Lord opens up the sky. They get quail and manna, double fold on Saturday, so they don't have to work on the Sabbath, right? Right? So tangibly, time and time again, God has been there for them. But at the very first sign of trouble, what do they do? They sow their seeds of doubt only to reap what? Rebellion and outright rejection. Our hearts are so fickle, aren't they? Jeremiah was right when he said, our hearts are so deceitful. Who can know this fickle heart? At the very first sign of trouble, they turn their back on God and they say, we want out. And it's at this point in the story you see the irony, right? One author says, Israel had just been shown God's care and the provision of manna for their hunger, yet they did not trust him to give water for their thirst. They failed to see that they, not God, were on trial. Indeed, they were the guilty party, right? Who at the very first sign of trouble turned their back on God and betrayed the relationship. So the charge has been... Recorded. Treason. The verdict has been rendered. Guilty. What's next, right? The sentencing. But wait. Remember the sentence for treason like this is death by stoning. Death. But what about God's people? What about God's promise to provide for them, to protect them, to multiply them, to get them to the promised land? If he wipes out the people of Israel, what next? Does he have another country in mind? Maybe those Jebusites. They look like a strong bunch. No, 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 no. Oh, yeah, the Canaanites. We'll go with the Canaanites. They seem like they're strong. They'll trust me. Yeah, but there's that whole idol worship thing that's kind of troubling. What is God going to do? Here, the rock of ages, the rock at Massa is the triumph of God's grace. Justice must be served. What will happen next? Well, look at verse 6. Moses is commanded by the Lord here at the sentencing to raise the rod of judgment. And what we read here is one of the most amazing passages of Scripture. It says, behold, God says, I, I myself, will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Here we read that God tells his servant to strike the rock with the staff of judgment. But two seemingly insignificant words appear before the command. Two seemingly unimportant, insignificant prepositions that make all the difference of not only understanding this passage, but ultimately how we find comfort in God's grace in difficult times. God says he will stand before and on. Remember? Why is that important? First, God declares that he will stand before Moses. This is an astonishing statement. Throughout the Old Testament, especially in legal settings like this, it is the guilty party, the defendant, who is guilty, that must always stand before the judge. In fact, in the prophets, God declares through his prophets that the people of Israel, come stand before me for your judgment. So time and time again, it is the guilty defendant that must stand before. Now in this amazing passage, God says, I myself will go before. And then he says, I will stand on. What does that mean? The Hebrew word can mean, beside, can mean before or beside, but I think in light of this context, I think the ESV has it right here for on or upon. Here God stands on on the rock. He is symbolically identifying himself as our rock. Now, we often sing songs about God being our rock, right? Our sure foundation, a bedrock that never changes or moves. But it's interesting, if you look at the passages of scripture where God is called the rock, there are a lot of different connotations that appear. For example, in Deuteronomy 32, it says, he abandoned the God who made him, so this is creation language, and rejected the rock his Savior, salvific language. Psalm 78, they remembered that God was their rock, that God Most High was their redeemer. So in that parallel structure, rock is also redeemer. A common theme that emerges from these verses is that rock has these kind of creation and redemption connotations. Sure, we can always praise God for being the sure foundation, especially in times of trouble. But here... The rock has connotation of creator, savior, redeemer, deliverer, rescuer. So what is God saying to his fickle and faithless people? In the midst of their doubt, despair, and defiance, Israel would no longer trust that God was in control of their lives. At the first sign of trouble, they turn their back on God only to reap judgment for their rebellion and rejection. But in this amazing trial, what is God declaring? Through the use of these simple prepositions, he is saying, I will take your judgment. I will take your place. I will be your substitute. I will die for you. Though entirely innocent, he will sacrifice himself and be their substitute. For God's promises to continue, he himself must receive the charge, the verdict, and the sentencing. And so Moses lifts the rod of judgment and strikes the rock on which God stands and with which he is symbolically identified. And what's the result? As a result of striking the rock, water flows out. But friends, this is not just any water, but life sustaining water. Water that not only satisfies the mouth, but enlivens the soul. Because, friends, the rock at Massa is not just any old rock, but the rock of ages. For in the fullness of time, the Apostle Paul himself would write about these Israelites, right? In 1 Corinthians 10.4, he said, they, these Israelites, drank the same, and he's now writing to Christians like you and me, they drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So here, the rock at Massa and Meribah is a type of Christ, a preview of the full drama that God would reveal as he reveals himself coming in Jesus for frail and fragile, faithless and defiant people like you and me, who sometimes day after day, week after week, struggle with making sense when bad things happen. And when they do happen, friends, God calls us to remember this rock, the rock of ages, who was struck for us so that we might drink fully from the great river of life that flows from his throne. Remember when Jesus died on the cross and that spear was thrust into the side. Remember what flowed out? Blood and water. It's no coincidence that there are all these references to water. For you see, this is God's message for you and for me. When we go through our parched lives, find ourselves in wilderness, desert-like situations to keep looking to the cross. For when we look to the cross, we see a Savior, a substitute who loved us so much that he sacrificed himself to to receive the staff of judgment for our rebellion, for our rejection. And we see our Lord, who, though innocent, sacrificed himself for our place. And this, friends, is the reason we can keep praying and keep trusting and keep walking in our pilgrim journey when our circumstances look so bleak. Even in the midst of a global pandemic, with its physical devastation, financial fallout, all of this, we can keep crying out to God, knowing that, He who is for us is not against us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, this is our God. God loved us so much that he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all so that we will never, ever thirst again. Friends, is the Lord among us? Friends, he is not only among us. He has become like us in the glory of the incarnation to endure the punishment of the cross for the wages of our sins, the sin of our heart and hearts, the sin of our independence, the sin of our rebellion and rejection. Friends, what kind of love is this? What kind of grace is this? What kind of provision is this? And so in a world that threatens us to turn our eyes away from the rock who created us and redeems us and sustains us, let us throw off everything that hinders and turn our eyes to the author and finisher of our faith. Let us turn our eyes to Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. In grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for coming to us, your people, in Jesus Christ, the rock. For this is not only any old rock, but the rock of ages, who in the fullness of time was struck for us so that we might have life, that we might have hope, that we might have comfort, that we might have courage. That we also might be challenged to continue to look to you, to look above when situations in our life tempt us to tempt us to look away and so lord thank you for the comfort of the good news of the gospel through this story of the rock of ages but lord forgive us for our sins of independence rebellion presumption of distrust forgive us oh lord and strengthen us by your spirit that we might continue to trust in you our faithful rock creator and redeemer And help us to come to this rock, the rock of Jesus, the rock where streams of living water flow. Water that nourishes, water that fills, water that satisfies, and help us to come to the water to drink. Help us to drink deep from the generous river of his life. To drink deep from the bountiful wells of his grace. To drink deep from the abundant springs of his love. Oh Lord, would you help us to drink deep from the rock of ages, For Lord, you promise if we drink there, we will thirst no more. Father, thank you for your patience and mercy with us through Jesus Christ. And now strengthen us now, we pray in the matchless name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.